This is Ian Babcock, your host of Chat by the Pitch. This week, I interviewed Richard Smith with Triumph FC. He's the director of coaches. He also coaches with the club. He has shared his club's philosophy with me. And as we sit down and talk further with Triumph, what they believe, his coaching philosophy, and how he tries to bring that to the club, and what he's truly trying to do. And he shares some fascinating insight into this beautiful game and talks about North Texas soccer. So let's start this chat and head to the pit. I am Richard Smith, originally from a little place called Harrow, which is northwest London. Moved here fully in 2001, but was doing four years before that in British soccer. Enjoyed my time and, and then got offered a full-time job as a director of coaching at Coppell Youth Soccer Association and then uh, really put Triumph together in 2002. So that's how long we've been going, 21 years. Awesome. You moved here in, what year was it again? Sorry. Uh, 2001, I moved here fully, um, but I've been doing summer camps four years before that. Gotcha. So you're bouncing back and forth for a bit. That's cool. Correct, which I, which obviously, so I know all the areas. Funny enough, Aaron Farmer of Keller Soccer Association was one of my host family mums. Uh, so, yeah, so we got to know the, the Metroplex and all the little towns and everything else, you know. We used to do a summer camp up in McKinney, where McKinney was just this um, tiny little place, really, that, that had one soccer club there called Blackwatch. That was all. And it was incredibly hard to get to. Now McKinney is, you know, classed as DFW, part of the Metroplex, you know, <laughs> and it's easy to get to. Yes. And there's quite a few clubs up there now. Uh, so, when, so when did you join or did you start? Are you a founding member of Triumph then, FC? I am a founding member of Triumph. There was, um, as, as DOC of Papel Youth Soccer Association, um, I had a couple of people come to me and say, hey, you need to start your own club. There's too many of these clubs doing, you know, things wrong and everything else. So there was three of us that originally put the club together. The one guy that actually come up with the Triumph name based on, you know, um, obviously being success Triumph, but also the English car and bike firm never actually joined. Would you believe he went to Dallas Inter, who Inter obviously folded into uh, um, FC Dallas. So he never actually joined and never come. So there was two of us left. The other guy left after a year as his daughter wasn't getting as much playing time. And uh, that was it. So I was sort of left holding the baby. I mean, you're not really an owner because there's nothing you own in a nonprofit. So right. it's more so of, of my ideas and, and how we run the club. And, and we're still a nonprofit to this day. Most of them, I've, there's very few I've learned in the Metroplex that are actually uh, an LCC. Most of them are a nonprofit outside of FC Dallas. I mean, I think even FC Dallas's academy is a nonprofit, technically. Right. Probably makes it easier, for sure. It, it's fascinating how they all do this LCC. Uh, they avoid the LCC and do, do a nonprofit. And I think, like you said, I, they don't own anything, so therefore they don't have to be accountable for properties or things along that line. So... It makes yeah. it a lot easier. Now, Triumph FC has how many how many coaches and how many age groups, roughly? Right now or over the years? Right now, as, as a right. club. We have, we have 10. So we have uh, five coaches. We're just looking for a new uh, goalkeeping coach. 
Um, one of our, the, the last one we had, really good guy, done very well. He had a job offer to coach a team very close to where he lived and he lived over in Flower Mound. So he went over there with our blessing. Hopefully we'll have six coaches soon. We're a very tight-knit soccer family. We meet quite regular, socialize to go over the club. One of our assistant coaches is actually the president. Um, so we we do meet and, and socialize and, and, you know, hash out ideas and things that we like, things that we don't like to help us along the way. That is something I'm learning that is easier to do with the smaller clubs, the larger clubs. It's a, a Zoom meeting and who knows who attends and who jumps on. It's nothing against the larger clubs. It's just yeah. the reality of the fact. It's easier to coordinate five coaches than a hundred and something coaches to get in one spot at one time. Logistically, yeah. Well, here's, here's, and again, I don't want to sort of complain too much, which you're right, but it's definitely easier. But how many of the big clubs actually do a, the DOC gets all the coaches or as many as he can out to do a continuing education. Uh, there right. isn't any that do that. And and right. I think that's what's missing. So that brings me to my next question is philosophy. With five coaches, I feel like it's very easy to build a philosophy and maintain your philosophy and culture within a club. Um, I think this is something that parents across the country, not just in North Texas, don't understand that when you have coaches that are coming across the pond and coaching here, as I've learned, your clubs are very close niche. They have, like you said, you guys do, you guys have socialized as, as coaches, but the club even socializes. They get together and watch all the teams play. They have a whole day of soccer matches at their facilities. And it, it kind of blew my mind away how we, as our culture over here, we go, we drive to Frisco, we drive to Plano, we drive to Dallas and we use rented fields where a lot of these clubs are part affiliated with a larger club and the larger club has a game field for them to play on and all the players come out and it's like a big deal. And here in the United States, we don't have that culture, that mentality. It is we're going to go rent a field at uh, MoneyGram or rent the go rent fields in Grapevine or wherever it may be. And we show up, we play our games and we leave. And there is no camaraderie among different age groups. You don't get to know the other coaches or players. There's no chance for mentorship. And I feel like as a parent and as someone that has coached, like that's something my wife recommended when I was coaching. Like we need to have kids from the U15 team come down and be mentors for these U6 players, U7 players, someone that they can go watch play, someone they can go learn from. And the philosophies, are get, they get lost because they don't, aren't there. Here's what I've always heard from a lot of coaches in, in bigger clubs. So I have, I have friends in, in most of the big clubs. Uh, I have acquaintances. I wouldn't call friends. But you see, what most of the people are worried about is taking their team out. Let's say a team from the West. And again, I'm not naming any of the clubs because they all have a West division, a Central division and, and whatever. So they take their team over there and then suddenly the coach that coaches a team in the higher place then goes, oh, I like those three kids. And, and suddenly those three kids are gone from the team and, and his team doesn't exist anymore. So they're, they're extremely worried about showing their hand to, to those um, you know, clubs. Now at FC Dallas with the boys, that's, that really should be what you're aiming for. I mean, right. that's our MLS club. That's where the best players should be moving higher. Everyone else, it, it shouldn't be like that, but it is. Yes, the poaching, poaching from their own team. I have a, a good coach friend that I talk to quite a bit, and he was telling me, it's like, 
he would develop these teams and in six months, half his team's gone because they like this coach better than they like him, but he's the one that's developed them. And all of a sudden he has six new players from that coach that he has to start developing all over again. He might have the same girls for a year, the same players for a year, maybe a year and a half. And they're, then he gets all new players handed to him because they don't want him to coach, excuse me, at a the higher level, even though I think he's a phenomenal coach. I've watched him coach. I've watched his practices. Um, but there's not much he can do because he's a low man on the totem pole or was a low man on the totem pole there. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. So let's go back to the philosophies. Um, the, the philosophy of the club really is to develop players to their best while they're, they're having fun and enjoying it and giving them the right techniques, the right tactics at the right age, age appropriate. Um, so uh, that's one thing that drives me crazy here where, where academy teams are, um, let's say, let's let's use a U10 academy team that they're already playing 9v9 because that's what they're going to play in a year's time. That's that's ridiculous. Why not have a U16 playing 11v11 because that's what they're going to play at U13. The whole point of it being formatted and and mandated is because it gives the kids more touches at a certain age, not because you have more players on the team or because you're going to be playing that in a year's time. I don't know where we think we're going with that, but it, it's ridiculous. You're, you're taking touches away from players the higher the format that you play. So if you're really a 77 team and that's what you're playing at U10, why should you play 9v9? That doesn't make sense. Going go to philosophy and, and we stick by it. I love four on four. I play four on four right up until we was to go into U11 if I could. But of course, a lot of the academy leagues don't. So a lot of my practices are small-sided games. We have lots of small goals. And we play a lot of that, three-on-three, two-on-two, four-on-four at our fields. But where I was going with this now, philosophy, it's okay of saying, hey, we want to play a certain way. That's all well and good. But if you don't have the players to play that certain way, um, we can't do that. So team-wise philosophies and and coaches uh, can only happen depending on the personnel that they have. So there's no way I can say, well, we're going to play out the back across the club. That's our philosophy. That's how we want to play. It doesn't work like that. But as a philosophy as the club, um, and it's up on our website, you know, we want the kids to have fun. We want the kids to learn. We want the kids to develop, even though the word develop is is really a bad word because, listen, you don't you don't go to the school teacher, hey, are you going to teach my kid? Are you going to te- develop my kid? That's that's expected. So if somebody was to ask me, will you develop my my kid? I'd say the same thing. That that's ridiculous. Of course I'm gonna develop your kid. That's a that's a stupid question that parents ask. You know, is he a developing coach? Well, if he's not, why are you taking him there? Right. And I think I but I think parents confuse development with winning. Right. And uh, that's and I think that's that's an American thing. Uh, very much so. Uh, we always have to be number one in everything we do. And and how do you how do you change the mentality of being number one and your philosophy then over development? Do you guys have with your philosophy of development and making it enjoyment? Do you guys? I was always I was always going. To, I was always told that you should have a 500 record in your league play because if you're if you're winning every game, you're in the wrong league because you aren't being challenged well enough. And if you're below 500. 
you you're you're in the wrong league because your players aren't getting that chance to taste winning at all or enough winning. I mean, there's only eight games, so if you win five or win win three, you're still within range of that number. But what what how do you guys handle that type of mentality then with your philosophy? It's tough because I can only talk about my my twelve boys, and I just lost quite a few players. Uh, because of it, so so we finished third in Plano Division One. The reason why we went to Plano I had a had a pretty good team, and um, you know had them since U seven. Took time to develop the players. So in our first season, we went into Plano because we had a lot of sort of nervous kids. On on our best day, we're as good as any classic D two team. Any any of them. on our bad day, which we'd have in in games, you know we were a bottom of Plano Division One. So in the first year, we lost three games. Um, so that was in the fall season. In the spring season, we only dropped two points. Um, and we tied the, the team that finished in second place, I think. Um, so so and I had a parent come to me that that was saying, basically, you know, we're in the wrong league if, if we've only dropped two points, which he didn't look at the fact that we've improved we become really confident, um, you know, confidence and, imp- and improvement and development go hand in hand because, you know, a kid that's not very confident will not look like they can improve um, or develop. They just can't and, until you can get them confident in their own ability and what they can do, then, then it doesn't look like they're going to improve. So, so he didn't even give me any credit for making the team better and improving more so on their mentality. Um, and their confidence level. And so he left and, and took managed to convince four other players to go with him, which is ridiculous. Now, the irony of all that is the, the so we finished in first, second, third, fourth, and fifth all went into the Classic League Challenge games. And would you believe all those four teams that finished below us got into boys Classic League? The only reason I didn't go in the Classic League and want to go in there is because they wanted to play 11 v 11 in the spring, which drives me crazy. We go about the, the format again, and I didn't want to do it. So I lost those five players to a team that was actually trying to qualify and finish below some of the Plano teams. So one of the parents that complained about us not being you know, good enough and Plano not being good enough and yet, and four out of the five top five teams qualified for Classic League. Classic League is, is its own breed of, um, as I've learned, of issues going on today. All right. Um, and it, it, it's, we can talk about that later. So building your philosophy of development and um, enjoyment of the game, how, how else do you guys pass that through the coaches? And I'm assuming because you talked about socializing, that's how you're able to do it and you guys get together and further your development of coaching education. We, we do. And, and obviously, as, as DOC, I'd, I'd like to do a bit more with our coaches, um, but I have a, a curriculum where I plan every day, every day for my sessions, um, which then goes into, so we use this thing called Academy Soccer Coach. It's a, it's, I, I know the guy who, who started it all. Um, he got me involved in, in using it. I love it because it makes me put the sessions. So we put it into their cloud so all my coaches can see the sessions. You know, they're, they're all listed for certain age groups. You know, um, our philosophy for certain age groups of what we should be working on. Again, um, as coaches, we all have different 
philosophies about how we should do it. Um, so, but we still try and meet exactly the same thing. You know, we all, we're all trying to do similar sessions and teach the kids the right techniques at the right time. So that's where our philosophy comes in with the club. And if somebody wants to do something different, then they don't need to be around us. That isn't what we want. So you guys really do lock down. And this has been the trend that I've been hearing, even with some of the larger clubs. It's like, here's a philosophy. I know this is what U.S. soccer teaches, and this is the philosophy of U.S. soccer, but go get your license, get your license, get your badges done, get your licensing done, follow what they say. But here's our club philosophy. Do what we say, because this is what's going to develop the players to be the best, according to our understanding for each age group. And I know a few large clubs um, do that, but not many and keep it in hold because coaches have their own game plan. And it's hard to, like you said, they have their different divisions. And if you have... 15, 20, 2013, 2014 teams, whatever age group it might be. I'm just using that age group because that's my kids, my son. Um, it's very hard to maintain <laughs> uh, status quo through it, but you guys yeah. are able to do it. So that that's the impressive. And you share it with your other coaches. They have a resource point where you can go and pull it up. Yes. Um, so that for, for, for us as well, we could have coaches down in South Texas that can still have access to our sessions and, and everything else and about what I'm doing. And funny enough, I'm just going to go over um, with one of our coaches today about, you know, how to do the new preseason. So, you know, I know you talked about COVID. One of the things that, that I wanted to educate myself more on, um, not as a moron, more, more on the subject, but um, was, uh, was um, fitness on the fitness side. So I was assistant coach on the U.S. men's national Paralympic team. I met a guy called Andy Thompson, um, who was a strength and conditioning trainer. And he taught me so much um, about how to periodize. And so during COVID, I went and took an online course by Raymond Verhaeen. Now, he's, he's not always well-liked in the coaching world. Um, I like his stuff. Um, but the, the course was so long. He's very monotone in his, in his voice. And, um, but anyway, I learned how to periodize fitness and what to do with it. Um, and, and so I got way more into doing fitness with a ball. His, his whole theory is that the game can get you fit. So don't take the game away from fitness. Otherwise, you're just training an athlete and not a soccer player. That's not the first time I've heard this. Um... Uh, it, it's been told several times to me that if you, because they play soccer, why are we training without the soccer ball? There's a time and place for it, but majority of your training needs to be with a soccer ball. Um, yeah. I always, I always find it funny when I hear coaches say, why are you doing laps without a soccer ball? Do you ever not run without a soccer ball? I'm like, valid point. <laughs> right. Well, but, but it, it's not that. It, it, it's not just doing everything with a ball. His, his deal is to try and get you more in, in everything to be game-like situation so you're making decisions and you're also working on the tactical and, and the technical side. So, but, but then you see if you're uneducated, and I don't mean that in a nasty way, um, because I, I was the same. So I was, when I first started to 
get into more of the fitness side is, is, well, how do I build a session? Well, it's once you start to understand and know there are so many things you can do, like a, a, a crossing and finishing session. Well, if you set the players up, let's say 50 yards away from goal and, and do a nice little sort of passing pattern and get the crosses in and have the player sprinting 40 yards to get in on the end of the ball, you're getting sprint endurance. And, and then you can talk to them about what type of runs we can make, crossing runs at the edge of the box. You can talk to the players about making overlapping runs on the outside. And so now you see you're dealing with the technical and the tactical side while you're still getting fitness. And, and it, it's incredible once you start to delve into it, how much you can learn um, and how to do it. So, so yes, I understand a lot of coaches think that, you know, doing a lap with a ball is doing fitness with a ball, but you're not getting the decision-making and, and everything else out of it. I recently came, I recently interviewed a, uh, a running coach. Uh, her, her thing is, her name is Laura Stark. And it's teaching kids how to run and how much kids don't know how to run. It's like, everyone's like, oh, you just put your arms, how you plant your feet. It's like, I didn't realize how much it was to running. And then listening to a coach talk about just touching the ball correctly when you're running or, and they go, you don't need to go run uh, six miles. The, I can't think of the name of the college test they have where you have to go run two miles under 14 minutes in order to be considered yeah. a starter for the team. It's like, that's so outdated. You need to go be able to go run a hundred yards with five seconds in between six times to be a starter, not run two miles because that's not the type of running we do in soccer. I'm like, isn't all endurance the same? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it was funny when I was 18 and I'm playing semi-pro in England, we got through to the cup final. I was a centre midfielder at the time and um, uh, basically I played against this guy who was way overweight. Uh, just incredible. I thought I was going to have an easy day. At the end of it, we tied 0-0. I walked off the field. I was exhausted. The guy was hardly breathing. And I realized his first touch was immaculate. His passing was incredible. I couldn't even get near the ball. He didn't move. <laughs> he literally didn't move. But it, it, it then brought a whole new meaning to fitness and everything else. And I realized first touch and, and understanding and vision, it, it, it can outweigh your you know, lack of fitness, so to speak. Um, in the replay, we beat him easy, but uh, that's because, uh, you know, we'd worked out that, hey, we need to stop him getting the ball. So, um, but, but yes, so that, that, and that goes back hand in hand to the, to the, his theory of if your first touch is better, if, you, if your vision is better, don't need to be quite as fit. Over here in America, we think we got to run them into the ground without the ball, run them for two, three weeks up and down hills. That's going to make them a soccer player. And, and that's where I feel we're still a little bit behind the rest of the world. So I was recently told there's three types of speed. Um, there is there is uh, physical speed, technical speed, and mental speed. And the yep. United States were lacking in the last two. We're lacking in technical and mental speed. Yeah, we see we see it with the national team. You see the players that go across the pond and go play in Europe or in other leagues, and you see that they are they have it. They have the technical the technical speed and the mental speed, but they're still lacking in the physical speed because they've not put as much energy into it. I find it funny is that. And one of the parents groups recently, they talked about uh, training and most European soccer players wouldn't make a JV football team for speed because they don't have the same speed to go run a, what is it, a, 
a 10 yard or what is it? 40 yards and seconds. What, yeah. The dash runs that they do in American football. And I'm like, huh. And I'm like, but it's not the same. It's, it's not the same type of play. You aren't, you don't get 30 seconds between plays. No <laughs> minute between plays to go do your things that reset up and rerun. Um, but someone made a point was even Ronaldo can't meet those standards. And he's probably one of the more in shape football players, even at 38 years old that can run even yeah. in his prime. I think and that's, that goes back to what you're saying. Like the mental speed and the, the technical speed is what we're missing. And, and, and that again, goes back to Raymond Verhaeyen's philosophy is that don't take the ball out of the game, you know, keep on training first touch everything you can do in fitness um, his deal is, and, and I'm not going to give um, uh, too many secrets away, his, his deal is the more actions per minute you get, because this is going to go back to seven aside or nine aside. or and So he calls everything an action per minute, um, you know, whether you're running, whether you're touching the ball or, or whether you're, you know, walking, whatever. The more actions per minute you get, the fitter you're getting. So again, at four on four, you're getting more actions per minute than you would do at 11 versus 11. So if you want to raise their fitness level, play four on four, three on three, two on two, and and come up with games and, and stuff that do that. Now, obviously, people can't do that for, let's say, a two versus two. They can't do that for 10 minutes. They're exhausted. So it's it's that's where the periodization comes in is knowing how long to play the game, how long to rest, how long to bring them back in. Just like a marathon runner, you don't run a marathon to run a marathon. You build it up. Right. The fitness is just like that. So if anybody wants to do the course, take it. It's incredibly boring, um, but it's incredibly knowledgeable. And when I say boring, it's all theory. There is no, you're not going to see all the sessions in there and everything you can take away. Everything is theory, how to do the micro cycles, the macro cycles, when to do it. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, so it all comes together. And, and the idea is to have fit, fresh players. Um, that understands the game better and have better touches and have everything else. So that is built into your philosophy. And that's, that's really cool. Um, now, um, when you're, when you're explaining your philosophies with your, your, with your coaches, do they give feedback on what they're seeing then and how it affects them and how it affects their players? And do you guys make tweaks every season to your philosophies and your, your coaching styles, or do you try to stick to the tested true philosophies that you guys created? Um, nothing's, nothing's tested and true. And what I mean is everything falls. Yeah. You know, I, even my, my fitness understandings and, and the games and everything else have evolved from when I was first doing fitness much different than, than everybody else, you know? Um, so, so when it evolves, it was like, I was one of the first to do a, a, you know, motion warm up, no static stretching. And I remember um, people laughing at us when I had my 93 boys doing it. And the boys used to complain, coach, why are we doing it? Everyone's laughing at us. There was only one group and um, a lot of the Hispanic coaches and teams used to come over and watch us. Um, and within, I think, a year or two, everybody was doing a more of a motion warm-up, um, active warm-up, but especially Hispanic teams. They were the ones, um, you know, that realized the benefit. 
Um, I had I'd gone back to England one summer and, and watched a lot of games and watched a lot of the pro teams warm up. And that's where I got the idea that we were doing it wrong. Um, so, but it was, it was hilarious. You know, a lot of teams um, laughing at us. Suddenly now you see most of the people doing it. If, if they're standing in a circle doing static stretching, well, somebody's way behind the times. My son, ironically, my son did um, track and field this summer um, as filler time. And that's something they actually talked about. There's a time for static stretching and there's time for movement stretching. And you, it's, you do it, you do your static stretching pretty much just before you go do your run, but you need to do movement, movement stretching well before you do your static stretching. Cause you actually need your muscles sure. warmed up before yeah. you sit down and start stretching. Like they go, yeah. you have to warm up the rubber band. Like we've been taught completely wrong in America and all this. And when he's talked, when I, I've talked to uh, physical trainers, that's something they talked about. It's like, we were taught that you have to warm it up by stretching. No, you warm up by moving. Then you stretch. Yeah. I always, <laughs> I always use the, the Laffy Taffy. Um, as an example, you know, as your muscles. So, so if you pulled the Laffy Taffy out of the refrigerator and then try to bend it, it's going to snap. Whereas if you put it out <laughs> in the sun, that thing will stretch everywhere. And, and so that's where you're warming up the muscles. That's how I use it. You know, we're one of the only, or there, there isn't many teams that play here that, that actually stretch with, with dynamic stretching with, with a, a mini band. All my players do it. So again, because we're doing something that is different from the norm. Um, you, you know, my, my players are looking at me going, what, what? Well, then we watch the women's national team do do it, and they're all warming up with the minibands, and then I say, there you go, you see? So if they're doing it at the highest level, why couldn't we do it? And I learned that from the, the, the men's, the Paralympic national team. So with your club philosophy, I mean, even down to stretching, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm laughing because it's, it's it's funny. I'm laughing because as a society, we miss so much because we get so hung up on this is how we've done it for 30 years or 20 years or 15 years. We aren't changing. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, well, yeah. and that goes back to what you were saying is there is uh, I'm not set in my ways to think that, hey, we're good. I, I want to still learn. I want to learn the new ways. Um, I don't do coaching courses anymore. Um, of taking them. I've got my A license, uh, USSF. I have my premier diploma from, from the old NSCAA, which is United Soccer Coaches with a distinguished pass, uh, which meant I can do all the licensing courses for USSF, although that's changing now, um, and, and NSCAA or United Soccer Coaches as they are. I have my USSF youth license. I took the very first UA for B in England. I was on that. Um, and, and I have all these diplomas in fitness. So don't think I, I, I'm done and I, I don't want to do it. Just the coaching courses don't get enough for me anymore. So I want to do courses online like the, the Raymond Bahayan fitness one where I want to learn and learn more about me. So, yeah, we're, I, I, I would hope that I'm still a progressive coach um, and, and bring that down to our, to our coaches and, and players. Now, with that being said, and this just sparks my my train of thought is now because you are a smaller club and you do have to keep your competitive edge. Do you guys work with other clubs then at all, or is it just the five coaches and you? And you guys really keep yourself I, in the business world. We call them silos. If you want to say your walls up, 
whatever you want to call them, or do you work with other clubs trying to better the soccer community where you're at then? So, so um, yes, I, 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 I'm not sure how long ago was it, 10, 12, maybe even 14 years ago, a good friend of mine, Anthony Penner, who, who runs Storm, um, and, and Paul Gallagher over at Odyssey, we had realized that the bigger clubs had an advantage in the elite leagues. Now, when I say the elite leagues, the only elite league that was around was ECNL. And, and we were struggling losing players to ECNL. Um, that's all they had then. Love ECNL to this day. It's still fantastic what it does. Um, but we realized that, that to keep our players and and to to be able to keep the talent that we developed we needed something else so we formed an alliance called city sc we put that city sc into the original mpl now the mpl was was club based only you couldn't get in unless you was invited um so we put all-star teams together then we realized that all-star teams worked, but it didn't help for the practice because it was tough having to get everyone in for a practice once a month. People didn't make it. Um, and so what we decided to do then was to pick the best team out of that age group to go and represent City SC. City SC then turned into Storm SC just purely on the financial side. Um, and what I mean by that is having two clubs was a nightmare for Anthony because he was doing all the tax reports for City SC and doing it for Storm and, and it became a nightmare. So we rolled it just in the Storm alone. Um, and Anthony runs, still runs that. So that's where we have access to DPL. Um, my teams, my girls' teams have been playing in DPL, love DPL. It is not very well liked here in DFW. Um, across the rest of the country, DPL is, is an excellent league, and, and there are some excellent teams in there. Um, love how they run it. East, uh, you know, ECNL is the top girls' league and classed i still think ga is better in in some areas but let me tell you dpl is as branding and every event we've been to has been exceptionally well run so um so we have access to the elite leagues through storm we play under the storm name but it's also it's my teams it's our coaches teams so so a lot of our coaches use that as a platform to be able to keep and retain our players and also play at a high level as well. It's like this, and I feel a lot of the, the best developing coaches are at the smaller clubs. We have no choice. And if we don't develop the players to get better, our teams are going to fall apart anyway. And, right. and so that's why I look at myself and, and a lot of coaches that know me will tell you that it's an incredible job. Going 20, 22 years this year, to still be here. We've only ever been small. I don't think we've ever got more than 14 teams ever. But but everybody uh, that we touch has to be developed. I mean, we have no choice. So that being said, do you think the the golden years is how I was explained it, um, is U13, maybe U14. Every coach has given me a different age range and lower. Is that that's um, what they called it? And for development. Um, without a doubt. Because you see, um, now now I've got a, a, a 2012 girls, I won't explain where they come from, and I, I don't want to bash their previous coaches. Their previous coaches done what they thought was best for them. 
okay, and and okay. helped them and and gave them some some little moves. Those moves are absolutely. I don't want to say useless. You can use them, but they have no relation to the game. That the, the kids lack one v one. So again, they have no confidence in their own ability. So here I have now a U11 team where normally any team that I've got by by now um, at, at U11 is pretty competent at one versus one because that's the basis of the game. So this team had none of that. So we done pretty good. We finished mid-table in D2, um, probably played pretty awful most of the time because, it, again, it wasn't about winning. They just didn't have confidence in their own ability. So, so yes, it's definitely important to, to get them to a one versus one stage. Now, um, people think I bash alpha forms. I'm going to name them personally. I do not. I think they do an incredible job with the kids at a young age. They forget there's other building blocks in the development. In the, the now, now their one v one skills are incredible, incredible. So you see, if you you cannot just be an alpha forms development under U10. Now you can edit their name out if you like because that that's great. But but you need more. But but their philosophy on developing one versus one is alongside mine. But the problem is you've also got to develop their their awareness, their first touch, their their vision, everything that that becomes to make a player. So I I hear what you're saying. The golden ages. I think the golden age is more a U14 and below, um, just purely because uh, once they start getting to U15 and and you're nearly hitting high school, that those players have got their own mentality and everything else. They don't think that they can learn anymore. They stop learning. Um, so it's really important to get them to a stage where technically and tactically they understand the game by 14. Um, and, and then you're just working on, you know, the, the, the finer points of the game with them as they get into the later years. And with with the tactical side of it, then do you guys? Um, we'll actually go take the step, step back. The personal tactical side, the development, the touches. Um, do you guys work on that as in your training sessions, or do you guys work on that uh, like in skills camps? Do you guys have that type of stuff set up? Like I can use Villarreal because I'll I have permission to. Uh, every Friday night they have skills night open up to the club. It's free of charge for the players, and they come and they they work on different skills, different types of touches, different, like, and it, it, they correct them as they progress, progressively go older. They're a little bit harsher on them. And they's like, no, you have to have this touch to do this correctly. If you don't do it this way, watch what happens. And, or that's why you made that, why that touch, that touch did not give you the results you wanted is because it was the wrong touch. Yeah. Do you guys did that on an individual level and in practicing, or do you guys have like skills that's part of the club then, or do you have it set up slightly different? I mean, every club does it differently. Uh, yes and no. We do. We do have a skills coach, um, but a lot of the times, um, and and again, even with my older girls, I have a U nineteen team. We constantly work on first touch. First touch is the be all and end all. And it, and if people think it's not, then that's probably why we're still behind here. So uh, that's probably one of the only things where I'll do it just on its own. As a, as a single first touch, you know, we can, I can make it a fitness first touch. I can make it how we receive, but, but again, we've got to get that 
into a game-like situation right away so that they understand here's why we're working on this first touch, not just working on first touch, which sort of gets me on the trainers and, and individual trainers and all that stuff. How can you make decisions if you've only got what you and a trainer there? It, it, it doesn't make sense. But first touch is one of the only things that I work on. Yes, I work on that in practice. When they're a little bit younger, we work on receiving, how to receive it as well. Um, I can do that with the older ages in, in rondos and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I, I mean, again, I think here there are too many coaches who, who isolate actions of the game but then don't then put that into a game-like situation so the kids have no clue you know it just just like juggling i i constantly see coaches let the kids juggle for 20 minutes okay that's wasting 20 minutes of my time and it's wasting 20 minutes of their time they could do juggling at home they don't need me there to juggle so don't waste 20 minutes of my time. I talk about with, with my kids, we, we, I warm them up. You know, we've talked about warming up. I don't warm my kids up for practice. I have them for an hour and a half. They need to be warmed up themselves, ready to go. I don't want to waste 15, 20 minutes juggling, warming up, all that. That's We just wasted practice time. So, so yeah, or, or, uh, you know, technical side, as I said, really what I isolate is the first touch going down for the younger kids. You know, it's teaching them the, the correct moves. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fancy moves type of coach. You know, I, I, we go over some of them, but it's normally the constant ones. I tell people to watch Messi. Messi doesn't have um, a, a fancy Ronaldo step over. Messi can drop a shoulder and, and you've gone the wrong way and he's already gone. So right. it's all about unbalancing the defender. So, as I said, at the younger ages, we definitely isolate a few skills, dribbling skills, first touch, receiving the ball. After that, I try most of my practices are game-like situations so that they can understand. I'm not doing a bash U.S. soccer's play model, um, coaching model. It's the play practice play which is what they preach. And I, I came to the conclusion is that it's creating lazy coaches um, using the play practice play model because they say you have to learn through the game. And I always chuckle because they can learn through the game, but if there's no coaching while learning through the game, yeah, they can't learn how to play. Um, and it's like I literally one day I, I sat down. It's like I, if I hear one more time, let them learn through playing the game and the coach doesn't coach in practice, I'm going to lose my mind right because how can a player learn that they're taking a wrong touch or they're not like you said having the sight um seeing that their teammate on the other side all they had to do was switch the ball to the other side and they could have scored not even a cross a switch because no one's covering him and they could dribble up then and shoot and it, it's but how can they learn to do that if they aren't being told that's okay well ever. well part of that ian so so I let the kids play at the end. I, I really do very little coaching because I want to monitor whether they picked up everything that we've been doing in the session. So that's where I, I sort of let them play. But you're right. I still come in and I'll still address some of the issues. Um, but, but a problem is with the coaches, which is why they don't like to coach during the game, is they don't understand what's going wrong. The more players you have out there, let's say you've got 16 players and you're playing 8v8 in an 8v8 
game going to goals if they don't understand what's going wrong. And, and this is what is else is wrong with the coaching courses here, the licensing. And I, I'll tell you that in a minute. If coaches can't understand, then they can't actually coach because there's nothing to coach. So I'm very big on, on my coaches and always have been, is understanding the coaching points, the key factors, we used to call them in England. They're what's going to go wrong. So when I say that is that you've got to get those key factors correct, those coaching points correct in the correct order. Because if I'm saying to you, okay, I'm a builder now, I'm coming around, I'm going to build your new house. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get the structure up and everything else, um, put the roof on, cover it all in. And you go, whoa, where's the foundations? Oh, well, maybe we will deal with that last. Well, you'll go, well, you're not a builder. So that's exactly about the coaching. So everything you do has at least four things are going to go wrong. Well, if you don't get those in the right order, when you're a coach standing there and you're running through that checklist, if they're all in the wrong order, it doesn't make any sense. So let's just say, for instance, um, uh, dribbling. See, the technical dribbling is completely different than the tactical dribbling. So the technical dribbling is, is get the ball under control, uh, approach the player, do a move, um, go out the opposite side to the move once you've unbalanced your, your defender and accelerate, go out fast. So that's the technical. Well, well now the tactical side, you put that in again. If people don't create space for you individually, you see, there's no way you can dribble. So the technical side of the dribbling doesn't make sense if you don't have the tactical side. So learning all these key factors, and I know it's hard for new coaches. When I when I took my very first coaching license, I had no clue of the other coaching points. And, and then when I took the B, everything becomes so much easier. And it was like suddenly that opened up a new door. So going back to that, I make all our coaches get the coaching points right, which then when they're watching a practice, again, let's say dribbling, and now we're into a game. If your team is not creating space individually or as a team, there can be no dribbling. So you've got to work on creating space to get to isolate the dribbler one-on-one. -on -one. Then we've got to look at, you know, decision making and all that sort of stuff. So, so I'm very big in our coaches of getting the coaching points right and in the right order. That that's key, uh, right there. I mean, I, I think <laughs> you said anything else beyond that. I I think parents have to understand, and I'm coming from a parent myself that doesn't have a soccer background, like my um that there are certain principles, like you said, you, you, if you're a builder, like you have to build the foundation before you put the roof on or a wall up. Um, and I think when you run into coaches, like parents have to understand what is the foundation for soccer? What is the wall that you need to build next or the next step that you have yeah. to take? And I think having a coach being able to explain it to the parents and the parents have a general idea of what that means. And they go ask the coach the question. I was told Go ask a coach a question. Like my first question I will ask a coach is on creativity. And I've used this on almost every episode. Um, my son wanted to learn how to do a rainbow at seven. And as a, as the co-coach, I had no problem with it. It's like, learn how to do it. And then um, he was practicing and another coach saw him saying like, I challenge you to do it. I want to see you do it next week in the game. And, and the coach, he learns like, Okay, so Landon came home every day from school and practices rainbow two hours a day. 
as his parent, I said, you can't do it in a game until you do it five times consistently. And so he goes, okay. So by the end of the week, he was doing about 10 times consistently on his own. And as a parent and the coach, it's like, he was scared to do it. And I told him like, Landon, you have to do it at the right moment at the right time. You have to figure that out. I go just not near the goal. That's all I ask. And he's playing four V four. So the field's not big. Right. And it's indoors. So I go, if it hits the wall, it hits the wall. You're fine. Just go control it and get it back yeah. and start playing again. Sure enough, he did it and did it right over a player. And uh, everyone went crazy over it. And the other team was really impressed. And the coach was really impressed because I sent him the clip of him doing it at um, with the live barn through Blue Skies. And he was very impressed with Landon. And, and it's like Landon didn't care that he did it. It was the option that he had to do it. And I know that... It's an extreme case of creativity, but what is your case? on? I always ask, like, how do you encourage creativity? And I had a coach turn to me and tell me, like, I want them to do exactly what I want them to do when I want them to do it. I'm like, you're not a coach for us. Yeah. And this is me as a parent making a decision before we even let them go on the field. We still let them try out on the team to see how the team actually was. But we knew inside as a parent, this was not a coach. And then as um, I've done this up couple of more interviews it's uh, if a game's on the line if you have a player that hasn't played at all or very little do you put them in if the game's on the line and this means you have a perfect season and what's your take and the coach says well i'm going to put them in uh i'm not going to put them in the win's more important it's not a coach for us because that does not give my chance my player a chance to develop at a young age because they don't understand the high stakes of a game like how can you yeah i was gonna say that's that's a double-edged sword here. You know, if if the parents allowed you to develop, we could, I, I could definitely do things differently. But we're also worried with, with so many different teams and clubs around us that we'd lose players in a heartbeat. So, so it, you know, I think every coach, doesn't matter what they're telling you, probably cuts corners somewhere in development for the sake of wins. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's just being honest. And uh, anybody that would tell you differently, they're liars or they haven't been around long enough and they won't be around long enough. <laughs> it's exactly how it works. But, uh, but I did want to go back to what you just said there about creativity because I'll go back to my 93 boys. Now, a lot of them played at the same high school. Now, that high school coach is a good friend of mine. He's still a good friend of mine. He still coaches at the same high school. But he said to me, how do you deal with these? I don't want to say he called them idiots, but how do you deal with these players? And I go, why? What's the problem? He goes, they just don't understand. I go, well, well what are you doing with them? And, and so I come to find out once I talk to the boys, and a lot of these, 90% of them are Hispanics. So he was trying to get them to do something that was a little bit alien to them. Hispanics. Uh, like to play off the cuff. I just put them in a position and told them to get out there and play. That the high school coach wanted them to do certain things. So he's limiting, and I don't want to say creativity, but he, he, he was telling them you could only do certain things. Well, of course, now they're, they're not quite sure what to do. Whereas they said, you know, playing for me, you just let us go coach and let us play because that's always been my philosophy. Your, your training in practice is to teach them that once they get into situations, how to get out those situations, how you do it is entirely up to you because that's where the creativity, just that you've seen that situation in practice and you can go and play. I, I always tell people, listen, I don't teach people to play positions. I teach them how to play the game so they can play anywhere. 
that's what I teach. And, and, yeah. and so anyway, these 93 boys were so frustrated with the high school coach. He wasn't happy with them either. And yet that, you know, they were a, a big part of his team and, and he couldn't understand how they could play for me. And it was easy and I didn't have any gray hairs, but it was because I just let them play. That was it. I kid you not. That's what I, I wrote down. I go, do you teach roles versus positions? And this no. is, and this is, this is, and this is where Patty and I were talking and, um, and he's like, what do you mean? And it's like, I ask all coaches this because I feel like if you teach positions, they only understand the dynamic of that position. They only understand the parameters you set for that position. If you teach the role of the player, that means they can understand if, if the, the center, center mid, if you're playing with a center, a center forward and he drops back to center mid, the, the center mid now knows that he might have to go or the right mid might have to go play center forward because everyone's out of position. And Patty goes, this is why I teach total football. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it, it, it really comes down to, um, and this came down from when I was coaching and I was only teaching 4v4. And if I was trying to teach a defender, like they have to transition from if they were playing the defender and the, they have the ball and they have space and they dribble up, and if the, if the space is moving to the right, maybe the right per, the person playing the right side of the field needs to slide back to the defender position because they they know that their role now has shifted. And even at my daughter's five and her five year old team understands this playing four v four, and it's awesome watching because they're understanding like their role is changes as the, the 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 formation changes on the field. Yeah, and I feel like as parents, we're so focused on our players being my kid only plays right wing or striker, and I heard this the other night. And I about cringed. And it's like we tell our, our my son, like, buddy, you can play any position but goalie. You're not a good goalie. Yeah. Because you don't you don't care if a ball goes by you. You don't you don't care. You just want to play soccer. That's all you want to play. And it's not that's not a goalie's mentality. Well, well you know that the, the great Anson Dorrance um, only ever recruits great one v one players. And and if you hear Pep Guardiola's same thing, if if you want to play possession then, uh, you know, Pep's theory is he'd rather play without a goalkeeper because, you know, he said that a field player can stop stuff with his hands, um, which he has Edison. Edison's as good as any field player at distributing ball because that's what he wants. So, so again, to and, and, and going back to Anson Dorrance, it, he only recruits 1v1 players because he can train them to play in any position as long as you're good in one-on-one, attacking and defending. And, and so, again, that goes back to the theory of, of where we are at a young age. That's why they need to understand 1v1. 1v1s, uh, you can't do possession. You know, when, when I get people saying, well, when are we going to play possession? Well, well the, again, there's a step in that. Passing and, and in possession teams is your last thing you're working on because if they're not, they're not good at one versus one, they're not going to move to get open. If their first touch is not good, then they're going to lose the ball. Okay, so, so you see it's 1v1s, receiving first touch, where to move. Then it's passing is your final foundation in your possession. So you can't have a possession team if they're not very good at 1v1s because they're going to hide. And that's, that's the problem. That's where everybody missed the steps. And, and again, a lot of the coaches don't want to do that because it takes a long time. And do they have that long in developing the kids? Do they understand what the steps are? Going back to that theory of if they can't see what's going wrong, well, guess what? They can't teach it. 
So um, that that goes back to the developing of the players. You've got to get the steps right. And like we, we were talking about, if you haven't got it by U14, then to, to, to go back and teach them 1v1 at U15 and U16, it, it's hard. It's hard work. It, yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I have, I only have experience with my nine-year-old son. That's the oldest I've dealt with so far um, as with players. And I, when I've talked to coaches and I seek advice on my son, it's always, I always ask, like, what do I need to look for? And they said, a coach that truly, when they go to your practice, if they, like you said, you let them, you let them scrimmage at the end, which I think is the play, the I, play, practice, play. I've always felt like it should be practice, practice, play. Correct. In my mind. And it is your game-like scenario in practice just to see how they handle it. Then you break it down in the practice part with the, with the U.S. model is to, to actually take what you're trying to teach them in the, the first set of play. But coaches just say, I'm not going to coach. I'm only going to do the practice part. And I hope they understand it in the last play section. And I truly feel like you can build upon it. Then you can throw them out and give them the game-like scenarios in their, in their scrimmaging and set them up to do certain things. It's um, I've heard coaches doing it in games. It's telling their goalie to dribble out of the box. You lose it. Okay. So what? There's a goal. You get the ball again. Okay. Go dribble out of the box. And the goalie's looking at the coach panicking because they've lost the ball three times and they've scored. And the coach goes, keep on doing it. There's a method to this madness. I don't care if we lose. And yeah. he's, he's been very fortunate to have his parents buy into this philosophy, but I can tell you that he has won the nat one number one ranked teams in the country from DFW because he has taken his time to develop players and the correct, like you said, the pillars, the foundation and doing it in the right order. And I, I can never remember this quote and I was pulling it up earlier. It was Johan Krof, Crofi, sorry. And I love it because it goes back to what we've been talking about. Technique is not being able to juggle the ball a thousand times. It's anyone that, that, that can do that by practicing. Um, then you can, then you can work in the circus, the technique in passing the ball with one touch, with the right speed at the, at the right foot at the, for your, for your teammates. And yeah. there's another part of that that's missing. It says at the right time. And I think that's that's what's missing is that we're so worried about being able to juggle the ball and do it around the world. Our kids are yeah. because that's what well, coaches are, are telling them to do. It goes back to that that Raymond Verheyen, who, who's a Dutch coach, uh, exactly saying in, in the fitness side, you know, that's why you don't take the ball or the game out of the fitness it, it is because you've got to understand that. You know, don't train athletes. You know, the I, I still see it. These coaches that are doing two-a-days, oh my God, I, seriously, if you do it right, the kids should be tired but shouldn't be exhausted. You don't want to break down the muscles so they're so exhausted that they're going to get injuries. And again, right. I periodize everything around where we're going to play. When does league play start? When are we going to put scrimmages in? It isn't just thrown together. I spend weeks. So I've got three weeks off. Once we sign, I've got three weeks off before we come back in the preseason. I'm planning preseason too meticulously down to the hour, to the minute, to everything we do, to scrimmages. Everything's put in. Everything's done for a reason. I don't just throw it together. Uh... I feel like that is the American mentality and maybe this is our lack of, maybe not even American mentality. It is a lack of organization mentality. 
Um, I feel like coaches have to be super organized and this is probably why I'll never make a great coach because I'm a squirrel and <laughs> uh, I'm a dog chasing a squirrel. I see a squirrel, I chase after it. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. I, I, my coach, I know that I did this. Like I had to go in with my game plan, exactly what I wanted to do. Because if I didn't, if I saw something that I wanted to change, I would have to take a note of it and try to catch it the next practice. Because if I tried to correct it right then, I would lose the whole practice because I can't get beyond that moment. Right. That was something I learned at a young age coaching. I mean, I'm not, not, not at a young age, but in the very beginning of coaching, it's, it's taking notebooks, taking a notebook to a game, taking notes. Um you guys enjoyed this episode with Kevin Smith with Triumph FC. I'm going to try to keep this part closing really short because I feel like we have so much more to go. Kevin has been great to talk to. It's fun to know that all these coaches in the Metroplex really do know each other and some have been around each other for a very long time. I hope that you all appreciate what he has to say. Until next time, I'll see you guys at the pitch.